Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, Michael Ian Black of Stella, Wet Hot American Summer, uh, The State, more on that in a second. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at Turn at a punk podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you would like to uh, get in touch with me on Facebook, the best way to do that is by heading over to the Turn at a Punk Facebook page run by my brother and show producer and Michael Ian Black guest suggester, Tristan Abraham. You can get in touch with him. He can get in touch with me. If you don't use Facebook and you want to see some of the cool stuff that we post on the Facebook page, we also post it over on a Tumblr page. It's turnoutapunk.tumblr.com. And uh, if you'd like to support this show, the best way for you to do that is by subscribing to it uh, on iTunes, writing a review and rating it. Thank you, everyone that's been rating this thing. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, if you don't use iTunes and you want to support this thing, you can. I'm sure you can like it on whatever platform you listen to it. Thanks for doing that. And just tell your friends. Let everyone know that you are listening to this podcast and there's something worth checking out over here at Turned Out of Punk. If you subscribe to this podcast, you'll see there's a bunch of other podcasts in that feed. There's uh, Turned Out of Punk Footnotes, hosted by myself and Chris O'Toole uh, with regular contributors, the Daves. And we uh, cover all sorts of, you know, the spillage, the fallout from Turned Out of Punk we, we clean that up in Turn Out of Punk footnotes. And you will also see that there is a podcast called Oil and Flowers hosted by Buddha Blaze and myself. And each week we talk about the comings and goings in cannabis, mainly Canadian cannabis, but uh, that's not every week. We do that every few weeks. So check out those two podcasts while you're on the iTunes feed. Uh, and I this show would not be possible, would not be possible in any way without the loving support of the fine folks at Vans. They just came aboard, uh, you know, gave me money so I don't have to spend money to do this thing anymore. But also, I don't have to book anyone that I don't want to book. I don't have to, you know, I, I just do what I want over here. And they just support me. They said, just keep doing your podcast. And that's what I'm doing. So thank you very much, Vans. On to today's show. Today on the show, woof. We got a we got a big one on this one. This is Michael Ian Black. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Michael Ian Black, he is a well known, uh, well, I guess most recently political uh, pundit um, <laughs> through social media. He's also a writer, a hilarious, hilarious comedian who's been in a lot of stuff that I love, an actor, 
Um, yeah, Reno 9112, as I mentioned off the top, Wet Hot American Summer. But in his book, in his in his biography, his autobiography, he mentions that he lost his hearing while playing in a punk band, or he damaged his hearing, I should say, while playing in a punk band. And this thing is always kind of stuck in the back of my mind. It's also stuck in the back of my brother's mind. So, you know, Tristan came up with a list of people he wants on the show. Send it, sent it to Brian Schwartz, who uh, works with me, and Brian, I love you, Brian. I love you, Brian. Reached out and made this happen. So today on the show, we have Michael Ian Black to, to confirm that, yes, indeed, he is a hardcore kid. I also remember seeing a tweet a few years ago where he mentioned uh, Nate from Ensign and retweeted something when Nate was going through um, battling cancer, which he uh, was able to overcome. So shout out to Nate. But that always stuck in my mind. Like, what's the connection to to Ensign with this guy? And, well, you're going to hear it all. Uh, This is an awesome one. This is a a really fun episode. We get into uh, a lot of great territory, a lot of really cool territory. We talk about some of your – yours are my favorite bands, you know? And this is something I never thought I would do with anyone from uh, the state or Stella or anything. And from the sounds of it – Probably the only person I could do this with from the state and Stella went on American Summer and everything like that. But I'm not going to ramble on anymore. This is an awesome one. Please sit back, relax, get your mind ready for Michael Ian Black on Turned Out of Punk. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm a... I'm a pretty big fan, like a longtime fan, like ordered the Stella DVD off the internet back in the day kind of fan. And I had uh, had state bootlegs kind of fan. And I had well, no that's, idea. That's pretty punk rock of you. Well, I tell you, tape trading comedy tapes. Like that was something you kind of had to do for a period in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s to get stuff like the state, Mr. Show, like a lot of that stuff was kind of like it wasn't hadn't been reissued so it was like get a life you know you were tape trading in the same way you would for punk stuff yeah i guess that's right um but this is a big thrill for me to have you on the show big fan of you finding out that you're into punk but i got to start this off the way i start them all off which is michael how'd you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre yes yes and uh I'm not sure that this even qualifies as punk by the time I got into them, but I, I get it, it definitely did for me. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, and this is in the mid 1980s in suburban New Jersey, um, which incidentally, New Jersey had a thriving punk scene, although I didn't know it. Um, uh, the, I was interested in music, um, but didn't know how to gain exposure to new music. And so the only thing I had was Rolling Stone magazine and every issue of Rolling Stone magazine, they would review albums. Mm -hmm. And I, I distinctly remember reading the review to, uh, who's produced candy apple gray. Mm -hmm. And that was the album that marked their transition from SST records to Warner brothers. Uh, it was a major label, uh, uh, for them. And they, they'd come from this, this DIY indie world. Finishing up on and, SST coming over to, yeah, Warner brothers yeah. at that point. And the, the review, I think, I don't even remember 
whether they even liked the thing or not. But I was, I was interested. I think I, if, if my memory of the review is correct, it was something along the lines of they still have their bite, but you know, there's also this softer thing and I don't know that this is going to work out and, you know, essentially fuck those guys for selling out a little bit. <laughs> but Amazing I, coming I, from I Rolling Stone too. <laughs> I know. And I might be totally mischaracterizing it. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to slam Rolling Stone. I'm going but, with the legend. I'm going with your legend. Yeah. Go with the legend. Go with the legend. Uh, so I, I was, I was interested enough and intrigued enough that I bought the cassette. I don't remember where or how, but I bought the cassette and the very first sound on candy apple gray is essentially static. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's got this very sort of staticky opening. And when I, re I remember putting it into my tape recorder or my boom box uh, for the first time. And I, I thought, oh, they, they sold me a bum cassette. <laughs> like it's clearly this is not meant to be on the album because this is just noise. And I was pretty I was pretty pissed off about it. And then. Uh, and then, I, and then, it, and then the, the, the static kind of fades out and it goes into their first song and it was faster than anything I'd ever really heard. And it, and it had, uh, it, it had a kind of aggression that I'd never really heard. And I hated it. I really hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and so much, so much so that I brought it over to my best friend's house and I was like, you really need to listen to how terrible this is. <laughs> this is like the worst thing I've ever heard. And we played it. Um, and then somewhere in there, it dawned on me that this was kind of amazing and that I actually loved it. <laughs> I don't know how many plays it took, but for some reason I kept going back to it. I was like, let me just return to this and see if I can make heads or tails of it. It was a grower and of a record. It was what? It was a grower of a record. It had to grow. It was a grower, not a shower. That's exactly. right. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and that set me off on, on, on that whole world. That, that album opened up in a, just a huge world for me. So had you kind of before, you know, stumbling upon this Rolling Stone review, where were your kind of musical tastes at that point? Well, I don't know that I had any. Mm -hmm. I mean, I liked pop. Um, I liked things that were on MTV. Mm -hmm. uh, but I remember feeling like, and, 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 and I am by no means cutting the legs out from Duran Duran or Wham, whom I still adore. Yeah. Um, but I remember thinking there, there must be more. I mean, <laughs> I had that feeling. There just has to be more. Um, and so, I, so at, at a similar time, Rolling Stone reviewed a Philip Glass album. And I was like, well, I'll buy that. <laughs> uh, and that didn't, that didn't work out for me as well as the Husker Du. Although now I listen to far more Philip Glass than I do Husker Du. Um, <laughs> well, where do you rate Candy Apple Grey now, like in the in the Husker Du oeuvre? Because as you say, that's a controversial record. I think it's one of their best. But oh, it's in in the Husker Du. Well, I mean, it has. It, I have a lot of sentiment towards it, mm -hmm. so it's it's probably my favorite. I mm -hmm. mean, I just love it. Mm -hmm. I, I love it pretty much from start to finish. Um, and then Warehouse Songs and Stories came out a couple years maybe a year or two after that, which is their final double album. Yeah. Um, and that's got some amazing stuff on it too, but it's not as, it's not as consistently great. Um, 
and then you know I got into Flip Your Wig and Zen Arcade and 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 all of that stuff. But but Candy Apple Grey was was really just kind of it was my Sergeant Pepper's. It just sort of opened a door in my head um, that made me go, oh, you can do this with music. Um, and it's also got like some really sort of it, it's got at least one or two really sort of softer melodic things on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't understand that you could juxtapose those two ideas in, in the same kind of album. I thought based on Wham! and Duran Duran that you had a sound and that sound had to be consistent from, you know, your three hits through, through all your filler. <laughs> and, and that was how you made a record album. Yeah. They, they're really the pioneers of that loud, soft dynamic that becomes like the basis of, I guess the grunge stuff that would get popular a few years later. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, so where did you kind of go from here? You've got this, you know, this record that's grown on you. Uh, was it just, you know, kind of picking up bits and pieces after that? Were you trying to go to shows or where did you kind of? Uh, yeah, well, I definitely discovered. So through Husker Du, uh, you know, I started just finding things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and my, my chief way of finding things was to go to um, the Princeton Record Exchange which was about half an hour, 40 minutes from my house. A legendary store. A legendary store in Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, looking for things, looking essentially for albums um, whose cover art scared me or the the name of the band uh, made me laugh or shocked me. So I remember looking at like Black Flag albums and being like, oh, that's really terrifying. Like their cover <laughs> art, for whatever reason, I found really scary. Um, and, but, and then, you know, s- simultaneous with that, you know, it, there'd be a band called The Circle Jerks. And I'd be like, oh, well, I should probably check out The Circle Jerks because that's an amazing name. Yep. And then sometimes this could backfire. <laughs> so uh, I bought 10,000 Maniacs thinking that's an amazing <laughs> Yeah, that and would that be was, a bit of a bummer. It wasn't at all what I had anticipated. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, were you kind of like, when you're going to the Princeton Record Exchange, were you talking to the, the clerks there, or is it just no. kind of like... Oh, saying, no. No. No, terrified to talk to the clerks, because they knew everything. I mean, they yeah. were they were gods, and so there was no... I didn't feel worthy of talking to them, and I felt like they would just laugh at me. I mean, I was a high school kid, Yeah. Um, and they were... Yeah. Princeton Record Exchange employees, <laughs> to, to, and and you know it was like it was it was like walking into one of those indie video stores or something that existed at the time where you know they were just filled with uh, film snobs. Yep, and they were probably they were probably just very nice kids, only a few years older than myself, who just knew more about music. But I was way too intimidated to talk to anybody about about music. It's funny because uh, this uh, there's an author who's been on this show before, Tony Retman, and mm-hmm. his brother was one of the notorious Princeton record exchange clerks for years and years and years and years. So wow. he had to live with that at home every day. I'm a little bit starstruck just hearing about it. <laughs> I tell you, <laughs> I get the big names on this show, Michael. Like I'm not just reaching out of here as, you know, no, you got the names. brother of a Princeton record exchange exchange employee. I'm blown uh, away. I'm saying, I'm, I'm telling you, I got, I got connections in this world. Um, <laughs> Uh, as far as like, you know, local music, you mentioned that New Jersey scene, which is, you know, yeah, in the mid eighties, there's a lot of stuff happening. Were you picking up on any of that? Were there other kids in your high school that were kind of into this stuff too? Well, eventually what happened was when I became a senior in high school and I was young, I was, 
I had probably just turned 16. Um, my friend and I, I had a friend named Tim and Tim, uh, was into punk in a way that I was. And he was like a skateboarder and he, you know, would have a mohawk and, and he just kind of exuded a punk vibe that I desperately wanted to exude, but didn't. Um, <laughs> did Tim play any bands or anything? Well, he and I decided to start a band. Oh, okay. Oh yes. And so we recruited a couple other guys and we started a punk band. Um, and it was in that, in starting that, that I really became aware of the New Jersey scene and the whole, there was, you know, a New York hardcore scene and a New Jersey hardcore scene. Um, and we know we never really did much with it. I mean, we played, um, but it was sort of just being immersed in a band and sort of paying attention to kind of zines or, uh, shows that were going on locally that I became really hyper aware that there was a distinct New Jersey slash New York. I mean, more New York slash New Jersey, to be mm -hmm. honest, um, hardcore scene that I desperately wanted to absorb and, and learn about. So there were bands, I mean, the big, the big, like New York hardcore band, I think was probably the Cro-Mags, um, who I found utterly terrifying, uh, <laughs> I mean, there were so many, they were, and I think they kind of legit were terrifying, sick oh, yes. of it all. Oh, they yeah. were like, they were, I mean, these were like, they, they were like serious, like assholes. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, like it's, it's funny because like, yeah, like the time that scene was, there was a lot of issues with violence and stuff. I'm sure as a young person <laughs> going to those shows must've been hairy. Well, yeah, so our local, our, I mean, local, it was in Trenton, but our, our big club was city gardens. Um, in South Jersey mm -hmm. and we would go there fairly regularly. And the idea of entering one of those mosh pits was so intimidating. I mean, I never did it. I could, you couldn't, it was, I mean, it was a place where you could easily, um, and, and, and if you got, if you went into the mosh pit, you would expect to be hurt, physically yeah. hurt. Yeah. Um, and there was a, and, and, and it felt like there was a fair, chance that you might get assaulted, like actually beat up because skinheads would hang out like white supremacist skinheads would hang out there. And then they would be sort of spoiling for a fight with just sort of the, the, the run of the mill, uh, Mohawk punks and skate punks. And then you would have the like straight edge punks and everybody was kind of there to, yeah, see the music, but also be part of this scene and also to stir up trouble and also to slam dance. And so, it was just a very combustible mix. Um, and it was fascinating and terrifying to be there. What was, do you remember the very first punk show you went to? Mm. No, I don't know that I could put them in order. I remember seeing the Ramones there. Um, I remember like the thing is you would go to city gardens because whatever was at city gardens was going to be cool. Yeah. So I would see bands whose names I have no, I, I don't know who they were. Yeah. I, I have no idea. <laughs> they, they were bands and that's kind of all that mattered. Uh, what about I, I, AOD or any of those buy our records bands? Were you into that, that stuff? Oh, uh, did I ever see AOD? I don't think so. I probably would remember if I had, um, Probably not. 
God, I wish I, I mean, I can remember bands that I saw, but I don't know specifically at CD gardens. Oh yeah. Just anywhere. Um, any, any shows that you kind of stand out. Oh, to I, would go, I think I saw, uh, I think I'm almost sure I saw circle jerks. I saw the descendants. I saw the descendant of the descendants all. I saw Fugazi. I saw God. I don't even know. And then just so many, just like local, local shows, just yeah. local New Jersey shows. So what kind of sound were you gravitating more? Like obviously the descendants, you know, it's on the popular side. Um, right. Was it that kind of like the stuff that had that melodic edge was, that was more appealing to you at the time? Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually, you know, at that time there was a real kind of split and I get, you know, it still exists, but it's, it's much less defined now mm-hmm. between metal and punk, but there was an increasing amount of blurring of those edges. So bands like uh, Suicidal Tendencies or, um, oh God, who's the other one I'm thinking of? Uh, they never made it big, but uh, DRI? Yeah, DRI. They definitely, the crossover band. The, the yeah. Put out the record crossover. And Racks. Um, there was this whole kind of crossover thing happening and I was very wary of anything that, that smelled like metal, (laughs) because, because, because hair bands and that kind of like pop metal thing was so, I mean, yeah, pop metal thing was so kind of like prevalent in New Jersey and so popular and the kids who liked that shit, I didn't like those kids. Yeah. So anything that had guitar solos, anything that had hair, anything that had um, just that kind of that metally very technical um, music, I, I I just sort of instinctively rejected. Yeah. It was, it was trans am rock, right? It was like that was the music of the enemy too. So I imagine when it started yeah. crossing over, it got weird. It, it got very weird. And then what happened in 1980, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know when these two albums came out, mm-hmm. but it felt like to me when they happened that they were setting the stage for, like you said, for grunge, but um, Appetite for Destruction and Nothing Shocking came out roughly the same time. Obviously both huge albums. Yeah. Um, but I felt like, I, I mean, I really distinctly remember like kind of talking about this and analyzing this with my friends, like appetite for destruction was coming at something from the metal side. That was the same kind of thing that Jane's addiction was coming at from the punk side. They had very different sounds, but it felt like to me, the attitude of what they were doing was similar. And it felt like it was all kind of setting the table for, um, the grunge movement that had, that happened a couple years after that. It was, it was a kind of rejection of the, the, the sort of pop status quo and trying to find new ways to, 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 to take those worlds and, and make them into something more commercial. Um, and that, 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 that idea that, that, that sort of, you could change music, I didn't, or you could change sort of the, 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 the popular idea of what music could be was really kind of fascinating to me that that could, that you could watch that happen in real time. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I don't think I've ever thought of those two records as being, you know, similar in a lot of ways, but you're right. They are kind of like bookends of this sort of <laughs> like were, yeah. push. To, to, well, to me, the, the thing that like, 
like Axl Rose to me was a very different front man. And that band was a very different kind of band than what immediately preceded them in terms of what was big. Mm -hmm. They, they had, they definitely had a kind of dangerous punk vibe to them, but they were coming at it from metal. And Jane's Addiction, I think, had a, had a, a similar thing. I mean, it's more art rocky, I guess, than punk. But, but, you, but I sensed that they were trying, they were trying to find a similar space um, coming at it from, I'm going to call it the left, rather than Guns N' Roses, who I felt like were coming at it from the right. Um, yeah, I don't know. One man's theory. No, no, and I think it holds water too. And I think it's also when you think of like, you know, Duff McKagan and Guns N' Roses had played in all these punk bands in the Pacific Northwest. So it's almost like both mm -hmm. of these albums are kind of coming out of the wreckage that was the first punk explosion and sort of setting the, the table for the next music. Right. And, and I felt like simultaneously just destroying, um, at least in terms of Guns N' Roses, kind of what was going on in the hair metal scene. Mm -hmm. It was it was sort of throwing down a gauntlet and saying, we're better. I mean, Metallica was kind of doing the same thing. Just like, we're better. Fuck you. Well, and it's funny because like you bring up the, uh, with Axl Rose, like, you know, the toughness and the, the scariness, but he also had this vulnerability that you don't see in like, Robert Plant or, you know, these people that presented themselves as like larger than life rock figures. Like he, he presented himself. as kind of like this vulnerable multifaceted kind of front person that was a break. I think from. that's right. I hadn't thought about that, but I do think that's right. The, he did have a kind of vulnerability and maybe that's, maybe that's where I see a, a lot of the crossover too, because Perry Farrell, I feel like had a similar vibe. Yeah. Perry Farrell in a sense was more vulnerable, like his vulnerable side was more forward, mm -hmm. but there was also something kind of weird and scary about him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And it's weird because both those records are coming out of Los Angeles at that exact same time. So, you know what? I think you stumbled on a good one, Michael. This is a new, uh, a new rock theory that, that I think holds a lot of water. <laughs> When, when those records came out, though, at the time, were you, were you into them or were you still rejecting anything I was, metal? I rejected out of hand Guns N' Roses. And then I had to – because, the, because uh, one of the guys in my band came from the sort of more metal world, our drummer, um, more from like the anthrax kind of side of things. Uh, but I think that I think he got it right away, and the album was just kind of in rotation in my circle. And I, over a period of not that long, a few weeks maybe, I, I sort of had to grudgingly admit that I kind of loved this. <laughs> that I thought it was, and I was intrigued by the, and I was intrigued by the different sort of vocal personae personas that Axl Rose had on one album. Like yeah. there was debate when that came out whether that was one guy singing or not in my group of friends, we were like, that can't be one guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's it, right. It's like, there's, it's got like <laughs> it's a precursor to screamo where you have these vocalists that would do yeah. these incredibly distinct vocals within the same track. But yeah, he does almost completely different personalities that he expresses yeah. in those vocals. Um, at the time, like were any of the, what kind of bands were you playing with? Like sonically, like, actually, what did your band sound like? Well, I mean, we were desperately trying to be a hardcore band. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we were 16-year-old twerps. Um, <laughs> and so we sounded like some 16-year-old New Jersey suburbanites trying to sound like a hardcore band. But I remember I was the front guy, um, which I really had no business being, although what 
front man ever has business being a front guy in punk. I mean, you just sort of have to scream into a microphone, but, um, I, I developed a kind of de- very deliberate vocal sound because I felt like my own voice, the, the way I would normally speak or sing was just too young sounding. <laughs> and so I, I got very, I, I developed this very sort of deep growly thing or what I thought was deep and growly. Um, and every, literally every rehearsal and every show I would, I would lose my voice because it just, it was so, it strained so much. So who were your kind of like vocal icons that you were trying to sound like? Were you trying to sound like a John Brandon from negative approach or, um, it was more, it was probably more like the minor threat guys, you know, probably more like that idea. Um, just sort of fast and furious and just, kind of banging around making noise. Um, and, and we didn't have the musicianship and we didn't have the, I didn't, we didn't have any of their skills. Um, but that was, but, but it was sort of like, that was kind of something to aim towards. Yeah. You're also 16. Like I, those yeah. guys were a little bit older. Yeah, but not much. Yeah. But they, they, I think they had, you know, they had a couple more years to get those chops in. Like I, <laughs> yeah. what was your band called? The pleased. It was meant ironically. Oh, wait, were you in a band with Nate? Was Nate from Ensign in that band too? No, no. Oh, oh. from Nate, from Ensign, uh, Tim Shaw. Tim Shaw it, was in? That's, that's Tim, the Tim you're talking friend. about? Yeah. Oh, whoa. That's fucking crazy. That band had a huge, huge role in my, like, growing oh, up. Oh, really? Oh, God, yeah. That's Tim, cool. I used to go and see him. I saw him a couple years ago when they came to Toronto and did a reunion, but... Yeah, I think they they stayed at my friend's house one time uh-huh. and stuff. But what an amazingly <laughs> well, small world! Well, that's what it blew my mind actually because I lost touch with Tim for I don't know at least ten years, and then we finally hooked up again in the city, and I couldn't imagine kind of what he was doing with his life because he wasn't really. It didn't seem like he was well suited to be anything other than a punk rocker. <laughs> and then it turned out that he was a punk rocker. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, he, uh, cause he actually became the roadie for sick of it all for a while, right? Yeah. 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 Had he started that when you guys were hanging out or is that still a couple years? No, before? no, no. That was, that was several years down the line. So it's amazing that he, and I think when he was hanging out with them, it was like a pretty hairy tour. I think things got pretty oh, I'm wild sure. at that point. Um, so what about any of the, uh, like what band, do you remember actually the first show you guys played, like what bands you played with or anything? Uh, no, I mean, we played at a battle of the bands, I think was our first thing, uh, like a local battle of the bands and, uh, we won it, which I felt <laughs> yeah. very, very good. Um, and then the next thing we played was like a winter show at our high school, and then we would play, I can't even remember the name of the club, but somehow we got booked at this club that we played a couple times. We, we did, um, we played at CBGB's. They had basically like a talent show, essentially. Like you could sign up. Okay. They would call it, I think, audition night. Um, that was and, a, and a we, huge gig, though, to get to play. You know, that's like legendary hallowed ground. Oh, it was amazing. It yeah. was the highlight of, I mean, it, it remains one of the highlights of my life. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Playing at CDs, you know, even though it was literally just calling up and they'd be like, okay, we'll bring 20, 20 people and you can play for 15 minutes on a Monday. <laughs> you know, it was, I mean, it was that. 
that sort of shady and dumb. Yeah. But but it was it was amazing. There was a band that that net, that didn't go anywhere. But but just since you asked, there was a band called Rain R A I N who we competed against. I feel like in another battle of the bands, and they were also local guys. And I just remember thinking, God, they're so much better than we are. <laughs> and they were. <laughs> I think they might have put out records. Actually, Rain, right? Rain. I think Rain might have done know. some singles later on. If I'm wait, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google them. I mean, Rain. I'm gonna Google Rain band. New Jersey Discogs. Let me see. Are you Discogs? Are you familiar with the website Discogs? No. This is a disc. This is a discography website where almost every record ever is cataloged. Oh, interesting. Yes, it's. But I mean, there's got to be other bands called Rain. There were a couple others, but I thought there was a Rain from New Jersey that had a couple singles. But maybe I'm it's conf- possible. It's 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 very possible. Or maybe I'm thinking of Rain on the Parade. Uh, say. But anyway, I uh, did you guys record? Yeah, we made a demo. Oh. Um, uh, our, our drummer, it, 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 I, I remember we went to this this uh, studio called Skylab, run by this guy named Dan something, and and we went to see him, and he's like, I don't remember how much it was to record it, but it was super expensive. It was like <laughs> five grand or something like that, and there's like. There's no way we get our hands on that kind of money. Yeah. And our drummer's like, mm, let me let me see what I can do. And it basically <laughs> turns out that his dad in New Jersey was in a, something like the waste removal service. I understood. Which is <laughs> – <which, laughs> I think we've all is, seen a certain cable TV show and can understand where this is going. Like that. Which is to say that he had cash at home, yeah. and John, I think, basically just stole the money from his like mobbed up dad, and we recorded this album. Oh, that for five grand, your demo too? Yeah, I, I want to hear this. Please, demo. This is now jumped to the top of my want list. <laughs> I'm a terrible record collector and tape collector, so I have to track down a copy of this demo. And it would be it would be it would be impossible to find. <laughs> well. Now that's a challenge to throw down the gauntlet. Um, so would you, uh, what was the kind of hope of this band in your eyes? Like, were you kind of thinking we're just going to do this demo or did you kind of have sights set on signing a revelation records or. Well, no, we definitely, we definitely wanted to sign, um, to somebody. I mean, and we, we sent it out unsolicited and received no solicitations in return. <laughs> we went, we actually drove to, um, Oh God! What was the name of that metal label in New Jersey? That I feel like Anthrax was actually on. Combat. At one point. No. Uh, uh, Megaforce. Uh, Megaforce. We we drove to Megaforce. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and did you get it? And just like drop the tape off, or did you, did you kind of try and wait around? Yeah, and talk we, dropped we dropped the tape off and never heard anything. <laughs> um, but the highlight, one of the highlights, was. We, we did a cover of If You Leave by OMD. You know, we did like a punk cover of it. And uh, there was this radio show on PRX, which is the Princeton radio station that, that featured local bands. And for a few weeks anyway, they would play it. And that was a huge thrill. Yeah. That's radio airplay. Like, a you know, how many bands never get a shot of that? I know. Um, and so when this, how did you kind of, how did this band wrap up? Did you kind of just all hit college or... Yeah, we hit college, you know, and it was like, 
there just wasn't a way to keep it going. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think we kind of idly thought, well, maybe we'll take a year and just see if we can make something of it. But um, I, I don't think any of it, I, we were committed to it, but not that committed where we were going to, we were going to forego college. Uh, And I'm, I'm glad we didn't because we weren't that good. And, um, and because I really have no talent in, in singing. Um, well, I really have very little ability. Take it from a guy who's made a 15 year career out of having no talent (laughs) yelling into a microphone. (laughs) Don't, you know what? It's all smoke and mirrors. It's definitely, I, I think you would have been an amazing front person. Did you like, did you, you know, do banter in between songs or you guys just kind of trying to be a straight, straight up. Uh, I don't think we did that much. If I can, I don't really remember, but I, I I remember going to shows and thinking the front man's talking too much. Yeah. Like, and and I remember seeing the Ramones and then just going like they start and then 35 minutes later they're done. And you're like, Oh, (laughs) is that all that is? Uh, so I think we were somewhere in the middle, but leaning towards the Ramones side of things. Given like, you know, that you've got, obviously in your comedy, a lot of politics gets in there too. Were you into Jello Biafra spoken word stuff or is that? I was into the dead Kennedys more than I was into Jello. I feel like he wasn't even quite doing the spoken word stuff or maybe he was just starting then, or at least I was only just becoming aware of it. But yeah, I bought a dead Kennedy. Like that was one of the ones that at Princeton record exchange, I was like, uh, I saw the dead Kennedys and I was like, I have to have this. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we would, uh, and I think Tim was into the dead Kennedys too. Maybe, maybe he introduced me to them and then I picked it up there. Um, but yeah, and I can't say I liked the dead Kennedys, but I listened <laughs> to the dead Kennedys. <laughs> Which, what kind of like, you know, you mentioned the descendants obviously and, and who's do what were some of your favorite bands at the time? It was, it it was weird for me because I would listen almost without discretion. I would listen to, I mean, I, eventually, yeah, eventually I, I kind of got in, I got very into Dag Nasty, mm-hmm. um, which is more melodic, like you said. And, um, and I really liked Minor Threat. Um, and I liked, oh, wow. What about Youth of the Day? Were you into them at all? I don't even know you the day. Oh, you, they were like a New York, they were a Connecticut kind of straight edge band around 87. Um, mm. one of the I'm surprised days. I don't know them. I, I mean, you probably, you might've even seen them. One of those. That's <laughs> entirely possible. I kind of remember Wasted Youth. Oh, you, Wasted Youth. Yeah. They may have been local. Oh, the LA band? I don't know. I don't remember who they were. I just remember, I just remember kind of being aware of them and they were sort of like one of these bands that sort of just had a presence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wasted youth was a hardcore. Yeah. From LA, from LA. Yeah. yeah the, uh, so they were, they were, they were not local at all. And, and, um, the drummer of that band married Patricia Arquette. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting. Or they were for at least a while married. Um, it all comes back to wasted youth. You know, it's like the Rosetta stone of culture. I guess so. <laughs> so, when you hit university, did your taste begin to change as far as music goes, or were you still kind of like into this stuff into into your university years? I I remained interested and into it um, for at least a few years, but then 
you know, I got, I just got so busy with my life that music kind of fell away a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way it does, you know, I think when I was in high school, I felt like that was all I thought about, particularly my last couple of years of high school. And then when I got into college, um, there was just less of it. My roommate was, uh, not by choice, just a guy that I ended up rooming with was a huge, uh, record collector and really into this whole world. Um, and I think, I think part of the reason I got less into it was because he was like one of those clerks. He was just <laughs> so into it and he wasn't a dick about it at all. And you, and he would let you, he would let me borrow whatever records I wanted to listen to. Um, but it just felt like I'll, it was almost like the reason I stopped playing chess. I was, cause I was like, I'll never be a grandmaster. So what's the point? Mm-hmm. That's sort of how it felt like with me and, and punk and, and, and this whole world. Eventually becomes a battle for knowledge, right? Like it's like a competition. Who That's kind of what it felt like. Yeah. And so, and, and so, so simultaneous with sort of that feeling was the feeling like I started feeling like I'm defining myself in this way. And I don't want to do that in the sense, like, I don't want people to look at me and go, I know who that is because of the way he dresses or because of whatever. It started to feel like a costume I was wearing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just sort of set it aside because I, 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 I didn't want to, I, I, it it started to feel constraining. What did your roommate have a a band or anything or was a, no, no, he was purely a fan. Wow. That's some dedication. That sounds like what I would be. Just a record yeah. nerd. <laughs> yeah, that's like, what he was. He was a record nerd. Were there like a lot of kids in your high school that were into it, or were you guys kind of like in no, a little group? No, very, very, very few. Yeah. And uh, that's part of what attracted me to it was the the the, the elitism of it. Honestly, mm-hmm. oh, I can relate to that. Um, <laughs> uh, when did comedy begin to kind of become like one of the the main? focuses for you and did was that at this kind of the same time like were you an sctv fan growing up or, or no i wasn't I, I didn't I, I yeah snl um but i didn't i didn't really know anything about comedy um it wasn't something that i was particularly interested in other than i liked things that were funny mm-hmm. um but then freshman year of college we i started this group with these other guys and uh and then it became my life. Were any of those guys in a punk at all? Yes. Uh, ben Garant, okay. who was in the state, was um, – I mean his, his, his sensibility was more like the cramps mm-hmm. and like kind of oddball slightly rockabilly-ish, punkish kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's from the south. Uh, but he – yeah, he, he was the only guy who – I feel like was sort of on, on my same vibe musically. Carrie Kenny had the, uh, she had a cool band, right? Like, Oh, she had a great band. I mean, yeah, eventually she started dating, uh, Craig Wedren from shutter to think. Okay. And after that, Eli Janney from girls against boys. Um, and I think sort of, she got really immersed in that scene, mm-hmm. just the, the kind of music scene. And then, she and two friends started this band called Cake Like that really had a nice little run. Yeah. I mean, they, were, they put out three or four albums and, and they were great. They had a single on Gen- Genius Records too. Um, that's mm-hmm. fantastic. Which one? Do you remember? I'm trying to remember. It's like one, I think it's their second single or the first single. 
um, that was the only thing I knew, and I had no idea. I never made the connection until someone mm-hmm. told me recently, and I'm like, oh my god, what a wild thing to find out. Yeah, they they were great. Yeah, like uh, so. What was the music culture around the state? Because you guys, you know, obviously do stuff with MTV. Uh, was it tied into music at all? The, initially, no, um, because it just wasn't. I mean, we were theater kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was music around, but oddly, like the band that probably we were most into as a group. And I wouldn't even say I went, there was a scene around blues traveler. Really? Um, yeah. That was the last I, so, I pavement. I thought you were going to go a lot of places, Michael, but blues traveler was no. definitely not the place I thought you were going to no. go. Really? And it's because it's because Michael Showalter went to high school with some of those guys. And so they were doing these shows and we would just go. And I never I didn't like them or dislike them. It was just more like the scene. And so through them, it's like we would go to um, whatchamacallit uh, downtown. There was like a basically a a deadhead club called ah, the wetlands. Um, and, And the spin doctors would play and blues traveler would play. And it was like this whole thing. And so it was, it was a very kind of social event. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's, those are like the only bands that like as a group, I feel like we would go see. Um, but, but no, I mean, there were, I, I would go to, I would go by myself to see things or, or with, or, or with maybe one or two of the guys from, from the state. I think I went to see the sugar cubes by myself at CB's one night. Yeah. So where were your tastes kind of going? Like, you know, obviously fantastic tastes right there with the sugar cubes, but like, where were you kind of heading music wise personally at that point? I was sort of, I was, I, I think I was just sort of moving a little bit all over the map. I was, I, I, I the same way I think I found Husker Du, I think I was just kind of looking for things. Um, I was looking just for interesting things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was kind of like whatever was in the air I was interested in. Uh, John Stewart hosted that show. You wrote it. You watch it that you guys did mm-hmm. on MTV for a while. Did you know yeah. him from back when he was doing barback at those shows in New Jersey? No, 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 no. I met him through you wrote it. You watch it. Okay. It's amazing to think of like all these interesting people that happen to be in the same room at the same time. I know. I didn't even, re- I, I didn't know that he'd been there until I read about it years later. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, did you, was like, do, would you guys talk about music? Was that like a shared thing? Because like, like you know, you're a hardcore kid, and that's obviously very different than just being a music fan. Did you feel like any sort of common connection as far as just being part of a broader punk scene with people, or were you kind of viewing your experience as being a different trip? Uh, well, with John in particular, I don't think I ever really talked to him about music. Um, I don't know, musically, I felt like. I, I felt like I carried this um, this kind of hardcore chip on my shoulder for years, yeah. uh, which I think maybe you have to have to even get into hardcore. <laughs> and and then it 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 was so wrapped up in not just the music, but also again that 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 sense of elitism and almost in entitlement of this is something that I have that you could never possibly understand. <laughs> and it's, it's like just the worst form of musical dickishness. 
Um, but I was absolutely that guy to, to a small extent. I kind of wonder if we do that because like, you know, for whatever reason, either they reject us or we reject the popular kids. So it's almost yeah. like, well, you know what? Fuck you. We're going to have something that you can't even get. Like you can't. Oh, exactly, it's exactly what it was. It, it, it's in, it's a hundred percent what it was. Yeah. Cause what you're saying is I think a very common experience held by every single hardcore kid. Uh, were, did you ever identify as straight edge? Um, no, no, but I didn't drink and I didn't smoke and I definitely identified with them. Mm -hmm. I was, I, 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 I was kind of right up to the line of it, but there was a militancy about it that I didn't like. And also they were all abstinent and I was like, I'm not going to fucking, that's the one thing that I really want to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, uh, but that's like, that's one of those rules that like, you know, it's like one of those variable rules, like no caffeine. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, you know, like, or but no really aspirin. Admired I admired how committed they were to it. Yeah. Well, it got, uh, and, and it got even more dogmatic and more extreme as it would go on in the nineties. And you would have like an entire movement, like a hardline movement where, you know, they would be doing actions like, you know, and it'd get tied to veganism and it would get, it's amazing how this sort of like thing that just kind of started out of this song, Minor Threat did would become like an ideology that, you know, it's worldwide today. Like, you know, there's, there's kids now that identify as straight edge that have no idea about punk rock. Oh, that's funny. It's I didn't a, know that. Um, I have to run. I'm so sorry. No, no, I that's, that's a uh, great, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh no, my pleasure, Damien. And I, one uh, day I'd love to punish you some more about this stuff, but, uh, this yeah. has been a great experience. Oh, cool. I'm so glad. And I really enjoyed talking about it. Awesome. Michael, talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. And though he had to run very quickly there towards the end, it was a little abrupt, but he did say he will be back for a part two, and that will be something I will hold him to because, oh my gosh, there's a lot more to get into. Uh, that was so much fun. Once again, thank you to Brian. Thank you to Tristan. Thank you to you for listening. Oof, oof. And you know what? This podcast, the hits keep on coming because next week on the show, John Reese of Rock from the Crypt, of Drive Like Jehu, of, of the brand new album releasing, Hot Snakes, and also from Yo Gabba Gabba. He will be on the show next week. We talk about a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> we go deep. We talk about Nemesis Records. We go deep. This is a super fun one. Yeah, there's there's a lot of cool shit in this one. So that is next week on the show. One week, I'm talking about uh, Sick of It All and AOD with Michael Ian Black. The next week, I'm going to be talking about Pusshead with John Reese. So until next week, go out there and make your own culture. If there's some real cool secrets still hiding out there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I will see you next week. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.